Thank you for today. We thank you for the much needed rain, uh, for the crops and the water table. We know what today is and we remember those who lost their lives on this day 21 years ago. But as Elder Skibbenus mentioned in his prayer, we thank you that the Word of God offers stability. It is our bedrock. It is our foundation. It never changes. It never shifts. It's, it's not a moving target. It has always been the Word of God and the foundation for our spiritual growth. We thank you that it is living and active, cuts us to the quick, lays bare everything about us before you. We thank you that you speak to us through it, that you grow us through it, that you give us your truth in it. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in 2022, and we're in an election year. Did anybody not know that? That we were in an election year? And we're getting closer and closer to the midterm elections, and we can see more and more how much division there is in our country, in politics, on social issues, on the best way to improve the economy, and much more. And no doubt, you've heard all the combating sides of the issues until your head starts to hurt. So to break up a little bit of the depressing and difficult debates and divisions in our country currently, here are some actual polls done by Business Insider that have a little bit more of a light-hearted angle to them. For instance, when a poll was given as to which state in the U.S. had the weirdest accent, which one do you think topped the list? We all have our biases. Most of us were probably too scared to vocalize which state we think has the weirdest accent just now. But the state that topped the list was Massachusetts. Okay, some of you, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have a prize for you. Apparently eating lobster in a car by the water in Boston is too strange for some people. I don't hear it. For, most, for the uh, poll for most attractive residents, California won, and apparently the award for ugliest residents goes to Alabama. I don't think we have anybody here from Alabama today, but if there are, I apologize. It was not my poll that was taken here. My personal favorite was the result to which state has the best sports fans, which was New York State, which I can personally attest to, by the way, just, I have to put this out there. The Buffalo Bills are the only NFL team technically in New York. It is who? Ha! Good one. All right. Strangely enough, the result for which state has the worst sports fans was also New York State. I don't know why that was the case. Maybe it's the Bills fans jumping through tables. I don't know. Lastly, Texas got the award for state that most people wanted to see get kicked out of the United States, 
which I'm sure a lot of Texans would also be probably happy with at this point. And the state that was voted the most overrated was none other than California, which I think a lot of us would also agree with. As divided as this country is, whether it's politically or socially, or just with a silly poll taken by Business Insider, there is something that causes even more division if people really took the time to think about it. We'll find out what that is and what that means to us as followers of Jesus today. As we pick back up in John chapter 7, and Jesus is on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and teaching in the temple, we've already seen a bit of people's responses to him saying what he's been saying there. Some in the crowd tried seizing him, and the temple guard, backed by the authority of the Sanhedrin, has arrived. There has been quite a bit of confusion to Jesus saying that he'll only be around a little bit longer and then people would seek him but not be able to find him and where he's going they won't be able to go. This confusion has taken the form of the crowd thinking Jesus was talking about leaving Palestine and going and teaching the Greek-speaking Jewish people and even Gentiles spread throughout the Roman Empire. Last week we discussed extensively what Jesus meant by the living water that only he could give. Therefore drinking from the indwelling Holy Spirit and what end times connections and implications that has. Now following that, today we're going to be looking at uh, five different responses to Jesus and how that connects to today. So, if you brought your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be picking up in verse 40. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 7, picking up in verse 40. Or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But we pick up in verse 40 and read this. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. This is the first response. Some of the people there were convinced that Jesus was the prophet that the Jewish people were to be looking for. A prophet who knew God face to face, a prophet like Moses. What were the people looking for in this person? In Deuteronomy 18, Moses gives a specific prophecy pertaining to this future person of God. In that passage, Moses recounts how when God himself gave the the Ten Commandments to them originally in Exodus, what was the people's reaction? They were terrified. Here was thunder and lightning and fire and smoke billowing around the top of Mount Sinai, and out of this, like the blast of a trumpet, The voice of God erupted, giving the Ten Commandments to the nation himself. Because the people pleaded with Moses to go speak with God by himself, so they didn't have to hear the blasting sound of God's voice anymore, Moses then went up the mountain by himself to get the law from God and then relayed it to the people. In that way, the prophet, like Moses, would be the one who would be given uh, God's teaching, instruction, standards, and the only way of salvation face-to-face, directly from God the Father, and then would relay that information to the people. 
Some of the people who have been in the temple have seen and heard the words coming out of Jesus' mouth and have determined that he had to have received that teaching straight from God and as such had to be this prophet, the prophet. Furthermore, the prophet, like Moses in Deuteronomy 18, was going to be someone that God would raise from among the Jewish people, a fellow countryman, as it's written in Deuteronomy. This fellow countryman would be given the words of God, and most importantly, according to Deuteronomy 18.15, we have a commandment attached to the prophecy. It says, the Lord your God will raise up from, for you a prophet like me. This is Moses prophesying from among you, from your countrymen. And then this is the commandment attached to it. To him you shall listen. Anybody who knows anything about legalese, when you see shall in, in a legal document, that is you must do it. You are bound to do it. Whatever he says, you shall listen to. God's people were commanded to listen to this prophet he would raise up. But it wasn't just as a sage who would offer good advice. Since these would be the very words of God, what was the only response anyone could have to listen to them? And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself, this is God talking through Moses, will require it of him. To anyone who thinks only God can judge me, do you really know what you're saying? He will judge you one day. He will require this of you. You will give an account. He will call to account anyone who does not listen to the words of the prophet like Moses. We know that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of this prophet like Moses, and he is the only difference. Jesus is the only difference between a soul allowed into heaven or a soul condemned to hell. He is the only difference, the only one standing in the way. It's not about how good you are or how good you think you are. It's not about how bad you are or how bad you think you are. It only has anything and everything to do with whether or not you repented of your sin and accepted that Jesus as God and the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies paid for your sin, death debt, as a substitute on your behalf. As such, you must not only take Jesus as the prophet like Moses, but also as the Messiah, as we'll see in a second, and therefore as king over the rest of of your life. That's the only way of being saved from what we're all deservedly destined to because of our sin and inherent sinfulness. The only way to live for Jesus and the only way to not be condemned on this day of judgment. That was the first response. Some, of, some in the crowd saying, surely this is the prophet. But like I just said, it's incomplete. There are a lot of people walking around this world who only think of Jesus as a prophet or a good teacher or some kind of sage of wisdom, but that's incomplete. And therefore, it's not enough. 
You can't just take Jesus as a prophet or even like the prophet that was prophesied to be like Moses. You must take him for all that he is, including Messiah and therefore king. King over the entire universe and king over every detail and area of your life. And that's what connects to the second response we see here in verse 41. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And in connection to that, still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? This verse starts out with, others were saying, which denotes that this was a different response than the one that simply saw Jesus as the prophet like Moses, either as a different figure or as an expansion on the prophet like Moses. In either case, there's still confusion about it. Some were saying that he was the Messiah. Some were saying that he wasn't because he came from Galilee. Some were saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophesied messianic king. This was a different area of prophecy in some ways than the prophet who would be like Moses, for this was directly connected to being anointed as royalty. The first instance we see of this is at the end of Genesis, when the forefather, Jacob, is giving prophecies about each one of his 12 sons, and when he gets to Judah, he says this, The scepter, he says, he says at the end of Genesis, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Specifically, the name Shiloh is best translated as the one who receives divine tribute. A reference to a deity receiving tribute from people under his rule. And the best translation of the phrase, until Shiloh comes, is technically until he comes to whom it belongs. Belongs what? Well, what we uh, talked about at the beginning here. The scepter and the ruler's staff, symbols of unequivocal authority. What else do we see from verse 10 in, chapter, in, in, in Genesis 49? That this king will rule over the entire world, including Gentiles. We read, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The idea of this king is fleshed out and rounded out through further revelation from other prophets, including that this king would come from the line of David and rule over a kingdom with no end. This king would also be God himself. This king would rule over an earthly kingdom of unprecedented peace, justice, and abundance. And then there is one little detail that the people at the temple bring out as a reason to not fully believe Jesus to be the prophesied messianic king. In verse 42, we read this, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The people are once again referring to Micah 5 too. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too, let, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And there's a very interesting description of this ruler. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is not a description of a mere man. This is somebody whose origin comes from the days of eternity. In other words, there is no origin. 
He's always existed. Now what's interesting about the second response from the people in the temple that day is that they have no problem connecting Jesus to this ruler who is also obviously described as a deity. Their problem is that they don't think he had come from Bethlehem. Here was the problem in their minds. In everyone's mind, they've assumed that Jesus was raised and born in Nazareth, in Galilee, where both of his earthly parents were from. But Nazareth is in Galilee, which the people reference in the verse before. Bethlehem is located in Judea, just outside of Jerusalem. But no one thought about the possibility that Jesus could have been born in Bethlehem and then moved to Nazareth. Nobody thought about that. I'm sure this is why Matthew, under the Holy Spirit's movement, made sure to include that little detail in his gospel, along with how Jesus got from Bethlehem to Nazareth, a long way through Egypt. And because of this confusion, those with the second response aren't quite ready to put their full faith in Jesus as the Messianic King. They're still questioning it. In the second response today, like I've talked about in the not-too-distant past, there are a lot of people who have made wrong assumptions of who Jesus is or have made wrong assumptions of what he would think today about any given social or political issue or don't know what to think of Jesus, and that's where it stops. That's about it. They don't want to know anything more about Jesus than what they've already decided. Some pass this off as agnosticism, but there is no excuse. We're all destined for hell, and if you take Jesus for all of who he is, you're saved from that. If you never make a decision about Jesus, whether you are too lazy to, or are content in your ignorance, or just don't want to discover anything more about him, more than you've already decided, you'll end up in the same exact place as the one who openly mocked God or denied his existence their whole lives. What follows this second response is the second time we see this reaction to Jesus. Verses 43 through 44. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the second time this is, people have attempted to try to do this. In the temple, during the Feast of Tabernacles, this is already the second time. John here describes this clear division between those who think positively of Jesus and those who think so negatively of him, a.k.a. a blasphemer, that they're again, for the second time, ready to seize Jesus, but still could not go through it. We talked a couple of weeks ago how this is obviously a reference to divine prevention. Perhaps God filled their hearts with such overwhelming dread that they couldn't go through with it. Whatever the case was, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't God the Father's timing for Jesus to be arrested yet, so he divinely prevented them from doing so. Verse 43 is a general description of how the Jewish people, by and large, saw and felt about Jesus. It certainly wasn't clear-cut. We, we read this, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. It certainly wasn't clear-cut. There were divisions all over the place, and I imagine many different 
and various kinds of divisions among the people based on their view of scripture, their understanding or rather misunderstanding of prophecy, and if they believed Jesus to be either the prophet like Moses, the messianic king, or both, what they wanted Jesus to be doing about it then and there. There are all these different factions of what people are thinking about Jesus. Now we switch gears to those in authority there. Remember those temple guards who were suddenly given the authority of the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus? Whatever happened with that? Well, we find out next, verses 45 through 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? We sent you to him. Why are you returning by yourselves? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. These guys were used to physically throwing unruly troublemakers out of the temple. That was their job. They were used to doing that. And these guys had seen it all in terms of disruption of temple worship. People who claimed to be prophets, people who were shouting at everyone else, people who were clearly out of their minds, people who just wanted attention. They'd seen it all. But what they had just witnessed when they were sent to go arrest Jesus was something unlike anything they had ever witnessed before. What they witnessed was a man who looked like, in every appearance, a guy in his sound mind declaring truths that were so powerful they could only have come from God himself. And that's what they explained to the Sanhedrin, a group made up of the chief priests who were mostly Sadducees and the Pharisees. But look at what else the temple guards are saying in their statement as pointed out by biblical scholars. What do they say? Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Never has a man. That's an implication that they left the possibility out there that Jesus wasn't only merely a man and that he was perhaps more than a human being. Now that's huge. Here these guys were, armed and given the authority by the Sanhedrin itself to arrest Jesus, and they come away from the temple that day wondering if Jesus is even merely a man or if he in reality is actually something more. And this is the third response we see in this morning's passage. That of seeking. That of wondering. The guards don't really know what decision they should make about Jesus, but they want to know more about him. The raising of the possibility that Jesus is something more than a mere human being is quickly shut down by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, however. Verses 47 through 48. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? This is the fourth response to Jesus. In one way, the Pharisees are responding in an accusatory way to the guards. Like, what is wrong with you? Has this Jesus conned you too? And then as a follow-up, as noted by one biblical scholar, the Pharisees flat out say, have any of these religious elite or religiously educated actually taken this Jesus seriously? So why do you think 
you can do that. Do you see that? The arrogance of these guys? They think that because of their intelligence and their high level of education, they can scoff at and just write Jesus off. And not only that, but ridicule anyone who even just raises the possibility that Jesus is more than what the religious elite and educated have already concluded about him. This is the fourth response. That of, in your intelligence and your education, believing in Jesus is beneath you and is ludicrous to even approach from any angle other than that he maybe existed and was crucified according to numerous historical reports. And if anyone does believe in Jesus for all that he said he was in both his death and resurrection, and that they need to put their faith in him for their salvation of their sin, they should be ridiculed and laughed out of the building. That arrogance leads to the Pharisees' explanation of all of this. Verse 49. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the Pharisees explain it all away by saying, None of these in the masses who are viewing Jesus as the prophet like Moses or the messianic king or even God have any idea of what's in the law. Their ignorance is what is driving their belief in this Jesus. That's what a reliance on human intelligence and education leads to. A prideful arrogance that you know everything. And anyone who puts their faith in an executed Jewish teacher is a complete moron. First of all, as I've mentioned before, there is overwhelming historical evidence, both from the New Testament and from other historical records, of Jesus existing, dying by crucifixion, and of him rising again from the dead. But beyond that, as I pointed out time and time again, just because the smartest and most educated people in the world deny that God even exists, what does that mean? That means absolutely nothing is what that means. And we're not even to be surprised by that, that the smartest and most educated people in the world deny that God even exists. Why? Because God's word itself tells us that God purposely made his plan and plan of salvation through Jesus to be impossible to find by human wisdom and human conventional methods. It can only be found by God himself, opening our spiritual eyes for us to put our faith in it. God knows all about this because this is the way he designed it to be. We read this in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness. It's nonsense to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are, headed, who, who, we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him 
through human wisdom. There it is right there. He has used our so-called foolish preaching to save those who believe. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise, who think they're smart, smarter than everybody else and know everything. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful and think they don't need it. God chose things despised, hated by the world, things counted as nothing at all by the world, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. It's him. It's nothing we've done. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Do you see what the focus is all on in this, in, the, in this last verse here? It's all based on God and what God is doing in our lives. It has nothing to do with what we're doing or what we think about anything. It's all God who leads us to repent, leads us to put our faith in Jesus. And therefore, we have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves and everything to be grateful to God for, for opening our spiritual eyes so that we could even have this. Now, we've come to the ultimate denial of who Jesus really is in the fifth response in our passage this morning, verses 50 through 53. Nicodemus, remember that guy? He shows up again here. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, being one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then verse 53 starts off the next section, which we're going to cover next week, but it says everyone went to his own home. But remember Nicodemus? He was one of the, those highly intelligent, highly educated, pharisaical members of the Sanhedrin. But instead of instantly rejecting Jesus, like so many of his peers, Nicodemus actually went to have a personal conversation with Jesus to see what he was all about. Apparently, what Jesus says to him about the being the true way to enter heaven, that of spiritually being born again through repentance and faith in Jesus, makes quite the impression on Nicodemus. We find out later that Nicodemus ends up being a secret disciple of Jesus. And here, Nicodemus is at least wanting to give Jesus a fair judgment. He's the only one in the Sanhedrin that's acting reasonably here. The rest of the Sanhedrin is so bent on silencing and condemning Jesus, that's just the whole way they've been approaching him. Oppositely, Nicodemus wants to give Jesus the same fairness and perception that the law prescribes for anyone and everyone else. But what's the rest of the Sanhedrin's response? Ridicule. Ridicule of even Nicodemus 
a fellow peer and just as highly educated, if not more, than the rest of them. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, their response says it all. At this point, the Sanhedrin's hatred and dismissal of Jesus as anything he claimed to be drove them to chuck reason and logic out the window. Here's why. The Sanhedrin had already made up their mind that no prophet could come from Galilee, and so they ridiculed Nicodemus for even bringing up the possibility that Jesus, who in their minds came from Galilee, could even be a prophet. Their discrimination towards anyone who thought this as even a remote possibility made them blurt out, tell me you're not as idiotic as the Galileans. Nicodemus, tell me. But here's the thing. It wasn't Nicodemus who was being ignorant. It wasn't the crowds the Pharisees claimed to be ignorant who was ignorant. In actuality, it's the Pharisees who are being ignorant. They were the ones who didn't know their scriptures. And that's highly ironic, isn't it? But both Jonah and Nahum, prophets, came from Galilee. And the clear messianic prophecy of Isaiah 9 says that the Messiah will make Galilee glorious. They're the ones who didn't know the scriptures. They're the ones who were being ignorant. But this is the fifth response we see in this morning's passage. There are many people in the world who refuse to read the Bible for themselves, refuse to try to accurately understand it for themselves, and instead go along with the world's messages, which in most cases, now, today, means chucking even science, reason, and logic out the window. This is what leads us to how we must respond to Jesus. We looked at five human, finite, failing responses and a worldly understanding to Jesus from our passage this morning. One, viewing Jesus as merely a prophet or a good teacher and nothing more. Two, hearing that Jesus is a king but refusing to go all the way to submitting their lives to him as king. Three, seeking who Jesus is but never making a decision about him. Four, Believing you're too intelligent or too educated to believe in Jesus. And five, refusing to accurately seek who Jesus is in God's word and therefore tossing out reason and logic and openly ridiculing those who do accurately seek who Jesus is. That last human response leads us to, in an opposite way, the true and only way of responding to Jesus. Seeking to accurately understand who Jesus is in God's word and following him today based on that. We need to seek the true Jesus and get to know with each day the true Jesus. Maybe there was a certain way Jesus was portrayed for you when you were growing up that's actually unbiblical, or you came across in a secular debate or class in college, or you read about in someone's Twitter rant. Set all of that aside and seek Jesus as he truly is by way of seeking to accurately understand him in God's word. 
you will find that Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies given about him, that he is the prophet like Moses, the messianic king who will rule over the whole world one day, and God himself. More than that, you will find that he took the sins of the world upon himself when he died on the cross and rose again three days later to offer you a way of being saved from the condemnation for your sin. The only way, by taking him and him alone as your only hope of forgiveness. And if you've already repented of your sin and taken Jesus as both your Savior from that sin and the King over the rest of your life, we have been given the gift to get to know the true Jesus with each day. And it truly is a gift. Spending time getting to know him through his word and communing with him in prayer. The more time we spend getting to know the true Jesus the more we'll know how he would actually respond to any social or political issue today. How he would respond to any everyday life situation. And how he would view the world as it is today. And we can take that as being how we should respond to all of these situations. Furthermore, the more time we spend getting to know the true Jesus, the less worry and fear we'll have, and the more peace we'll have. These things aren't the ends in and of themselves, but they're byproducts of spending time with and getting to know our God better and better with each day. There will be a day when, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we'll see and know Jesus in the same way he sees and knows us now. Isn't that incredible? As we look forward to that day, let us spend as much time as we can in the here and now, getting to know him as much as we can. After all, seeking God and giving him glory is God's purpose for us in this life. Getting to know the true Jesus through his word and through prayer is the best and most rewarding life we can have. Psalm 63 puts it this way. O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Look around the world today. There is no water. It is a parched land. Jesus is the only source of living water. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in which we see five different human worldly responses to Jesus. And I pray that if there's anybody here today or listening, watching online later, and you've had one of those responses to Jesus your whole life, I pray that you would set that aside, get rid of that, and seek to find the true Jesus. You will find him. He will reveal himself to you. 
And through the churning of the Holy Spirit in your heart, repent of your sins today. Take him as your Savior and King. And if we've already done that, let us see what getting to know the true Jesus each day as the treasure and the gift that it is. That the more and more we seek to get to know the true Jesus better and better each day through his word, through prayer, we'll have these byproducts of more peace, of less worry, of less fear, of uh, uh, greater boldness to take the word of God to this world, uh, a greater awareness of the Holy Spirit working in us and giving us that, that courage and that power to live the life that God has called us to. Lord, we know we live in a parched and weary land. You are the only source of living water, as we talked about last week. Let us drink as much as we can of that living water of the Holy Spirit by getting to know the true Jesus in your word with each day. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we...